0: We're going to be picking up in verse 13, which is going to be on page 613 if you're using one of those black ESVP Bibles. And as we've been mentioning so far throughout our, our time together, we do want to take a sober look at the cross. And we're going to do it through the lens of Isaiah, who was likely writing this about 700 years before Jesus actually came into this world. But one of the most important things that I want to do tonight, church, is to show you that when Jesus went to the Mount of Calvary, right when he went to the cross, he was not doing it just as a man, even though he absolutely was. But he was doing it as the divine king, the one in which all the Old Testament has been talking about. The one in whom... Victory was promised to come through back in the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis 3. Where we learn that a king, a royal line, was going to lay down his life to restore the kingdom. And that victory would come through suffering. Would come through suffering. And so I'd like to continue that through the book of Isaiah tonight. But as I normally do, I want to just take another moment just to pray together. I'm going to pray for you, and I ask that you pray for me, and then we'll look at God's Word. Well, Father, as we uh, just enter into just another moment with you in prayer, God, I do ask that you would just allow your words, maybe words that are very familiar to some, maybe are brand new to others. But regardless of how we come in here tonight, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us just fresh eyes, fresh ears, that you would illuminate your text, that we would be able to just to see you, Jesus, rightly for who you are throughout all of your word. And God, we desperately need you. God, even our little kiddos in the room tonight, as they join all of us in our pursuit just to know you more, to love you more. And God, we know that it can only come through your work in our lives. And so, in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> it's alright. Alright, well, while we are getting to the book of Isaiah, let me just kind of set up for a moment some of the language that we're actually going to see in Isaiah 52. Because there is no... Surprise, right? We are jumping in, right? We're parachuting into the middle of a book, and if you've been around me and been around my own teaching style long enough, you know that context is king, and so I need to give some framework to what we are reading, because the book of Isaiah, it's a book of the visions or the prophecies of this man named Isaiah, and he was given these unique visions, these unique understanding about not only was going to come to the nation of Israel, but how the plan of God was going to unfold. And so the book of Isaiah relatively begins with actually him seeing this throne room of God. He's able to see God in Isaiah 6. And it'll be up on the screen. It's a, a passage that you're probably very familiar with, where Isaiah is seeing the Lord. And where is he? He's high, and he's lifted up. And all around the throne of God, there are seraphim. They're worshiping him, and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, the Lord of hosts. Right? The whole earth is full of his glory. So even from the very beginning, church, from the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, we're already, already given this language of kingdom. That when we see God, we should see him as king. But then, as the book of Isaiah continues, there becomes this focus on the need for redemption for God's people. Because although God is holy, 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 we are not. And so a passage we look at quite often around the Advent season, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Isaiah gives us some framework that God is going to send a child, right? We've looked at this in the past. This child and all these attributes that are going to surround him. But I want to bring your attention to verse 7. Verse 7. Where this child is also a man. And not just any man, but a king. And so we read here about this kingdom that's going to be forever. Now for the sake of time, let me fast forward a little bit. Because Isaiah, as Isaiah continues in his his basically building up and this clarification of who this king is, who this child is, you see other language being used like the arm of the Lord or you see this language of a suffering servant come into picture. And what I want to do is I want to tell you that this is Isaiah talking about one person who somehow is going to be a king, but yet also a servant. And so as we get to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, here Isaiah focuses in on an event that's going to happen to this king and how this event is going to lead to the establishment of the kingdom. So let me go ahead and just read... The rest of Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, all the way through 53. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind, So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generations who considered... That he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse ten Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm not going to go through every line in that passage But I hope just as I read through it, you began to see these undeniable descriptions of what would certainly be resembled of Jesus at the cross. Because that's what it was talking about. It was highlighting a king that is to come, but a king that will suffer. But let me point out a few verses as we go along. If you look back at Isaiah 52, verse 13... Notice the language when he says, "Behold my servant. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted." This is the language of the throne church. right This is the language that we just saw when we looked at Isaiah six, because who was high and exalted in Isaiah 6? God, God was. And really, throughout the whole book of Isaiah, that language of high and exalted, that's only reserved for God. But yet we're learning about a servant who shall be high and highly exalted. But shall, because there's something that needs to happen before. And that's what the rest of our passage describes for us. And starting in verse 14, you can see how Isaiah already starts to paint a different type of picture. A different type of hardship. A king that's going to go through something gruesome. That's going to go through something that we can't even hardly put words around. If you look at even the language that we see at the beginning in Isaiah Fifty three, fourteen, when it says that he was so marred beyond human recognition. Telling us that the servant king, he's going to go through something. That you're not even going to be able to tell he's a human in some ways. You're not even going to be able to recognize him. That he's going to be grossly mutilated. That he's going to be beaten. That he's going to be mocked. And we know this was true of Jesus. That even before he went to the cross, he was beaten by the religious rulers. He was beaten by the Roman soldiers. Right? He was scourged. Right? He, he had a crown of thorns pressed into his scalp. He had his broken, exposed flesh laid down on a couple pieces of timber and railroad spikes were sent through his nerve endings, nailing His hands and feet to a wooden cross. Pain that we don't even really have a word for in English. But jumping down to Isaiah 53:3, Isaiah tells us it's not just physical pain that he went through, but relational, emotional. He tells us that this king is going to be rejected by men. Right? Men are going to hide their faces from him. He's going to be despised. We're not going to esteem him anymore. And once again, this is exactly what happened to Jesus' church. Right? Where the religious rulers and even his followers began to say, We don't want him. Do with him what you will. Even on the cross, men wouldn't even look at Jesus. They wouldn't even look up. They didn't even want to behold him at all. Those who were shouting Hosanna days before were no longer around to be found. He was rejected by men. But church, starting in verse 5, Isaiah takes another twist to this. He shifts his language from a suffering servant and he actually... He actually brings us into the story. He brings us into the story. And because what I want to do tonight, church, is show you that Isaiah, this passage in Isaiah, is not just about the coming Jesus, but it's also a story of us. Because what is the question that Isaiah wants to answer? What's the question in which this whole passage is trying to describe? It's the question of why is he there? Why would the king have to go through this? Why would a king lay down his life? Why would someone pour out their soul to death? Why did this happen? It happened because of us. It happened because of me. He was there for me. He was there for you. Look at verse 5. It says, he was pierced for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. You see how Isaiah, he's bringing us into the story. It's no longer about somebody else out there. It's not just right, theoretical thing that's going to happen. It's not some kind of worldview in which Christianity is trying to propose. The Bible is saying this is a story about you also. It's how your story fits into the story of the king. Because Jesus wasn't there because he did anything wrong. He wasn't there because he had sinned. He was sinless. Perfect. He wasn't there because he had strayed or rebelled against God. Who has strayed against God? I have. You have. Even verse 6, it says that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. How many of us? Everyone. Everyone has turned. And I think if we're honest tonight, we would walk with a limp going, I did. I have. I have turned away from from the God who's created everything. I have turned my back on him. And I should have died for that. Because I was not just turning my back on some mere person. I was turning my back on the almighty king and ruler of everything. Treason at its highest level. And we should have died because of that. And God could have done that. And it would have been just, church. right? The moment that we sinned, it would have been just for punishment to come at that exact moment. But but yet, in God's mercy, reserved that judgment. And when Jesus got on the cross, he says, give it to me. Give it to me. In verse 7, it says that this servant, this suffering king, did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, right, like like a sheep before its shears, silence. Though he had every right to say, it's not fair, this is not right, this is not just. He kept his mouth shut because he wasn't there for him. He was there for us. And so more than just the physical pain in which Jesus experienced on the cross, we see that Jesus was also experiencing the wrath of God, the due penalty for any sin, for my sin, for your sin. The wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus in this moment. And so as Jesus hung there, church, hear me on this. As Jesus hung there, God the Father was looking down at God the Son as if he had committed every sin in which you and I had committed and every sin in which ever we would be committed by those who are called his own. Verse 10 tells us that he was becoming an atonement, a guilt Sacrifice, in which we desperately needed, but even as he was becoming what we should have been, right? When he was being sacrificed and where we should have been sacrificed, we see that there's this exchange happening. Because by his chastisement, we would receive peace. Peace. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he was not only taking our sin, he was not just only bearing our rightful punishment, but Jesus was also giving us his life. He was saying, I'm trading my life for theirs. Look at me as if I have committed everything which they have done, but look at them as if they have done everything I have done. Give them my righteousness, Father. And the scripture says that He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Verse 11 tells us that there is the satisfaction that came from the servant here. That Jesus was satisfied in giving away his righteousness. He wanted to. He wanted to go to the cross church. This was, and the reason why he wanted to do this was not just because of his love for us, even though that's true, right? God demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. But it was also because it was God's plan. It was God's perfect plan. Because let me remind you the king always knows what he is going to do, a perfect king knows the plan. And I say this because some have wrongly accused the cross of Jesus Christ being some kind of form of divine child abuse. And it wasn't. Because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing on the cross. And he willingly went there. Look at verse 12. Where it says, the servant poured out his soul to death. So who poured out his soul? Jesus did. He did it himself. He poured himself out to death. Jesus went to the cross knowing what it was going to happen. Knowing that he was going to die a sinner's death. Knowing that he was becoming a sacrifice in that moment. Because as we've been saying repeatedly, he knew that the victory of God would come through. Suffering. Even if you jump back to verse 10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the plan of God. Jesus knew when he came to earth this was going to happen, he knew that he was a baby born to die. He knew that when he rode into Jerusalem, which we looked at last Sunday, he knew he was coming to lay his life down. And he knew when he surrendered himself to the hands of Pontius Pilate that it was going to cost him everything. He knew it all, church, because he knew the will of the Lord, and he gladly poured out his soul because he knew in doing so He was taking on the curse. The curse of sin. The curse of death. The only tool in the toolbox of our great enemy, Satan. He was taking it on. Because he was undoing the curse. Because Adam, right, the first Adam, what did he do at the tree? He brought sin to the world. But now the second better Adam, Jesus, he was bringing bringing redemption upon a tree. You see, God knew what he was doing. Jesus knew the plan. And it was the will of God to save a sinful people through the sacrifice of the king. And it's why the last words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross you know what they are? Before he breathed his last, laugh, he laughed, he yelled out, It is finished. It's finished. I have done what I have come to do. It is finished. The sac- sacrifice of the king is complete. But before I close us in prayer... I want to direct your eyes to one more passage in verse 10 in Isaiah 53 because I think many missed it when Isaiah they were rightly concentrated on the gruesome death that was to come to the suffering servant, but yet at the end of verse 10, we see this language that he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So Isaiah is saying, even though this real death, right, this real pouring out is going to take place, yet even with that happening, it's not going to be the end of the story. There's going to be more to come. There's more days ahead of this one. So even in the darkest night of human history, church, we are given a clue that this will not be the end. Though the suffering and the death were very real, and it was very final, it wouldn't be the last words that Jesus spoke. But until Sunday, we wait. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we just close our time in your word, God, I pray that we would just have a, a sober heart as we walk out of this, this building this evening, knowing about the beauty that is to come on Sunday has the backdrop of Friday. I don't deserve this, Lord. I I didn't deserve for you to do what you did. But you did it because you loved me. You did it because you love sinners. And God, I pray that every single one of us Look at you at the cross. Think about you on the cross and say, it counted for me. It counted for me. In your name, Jesus.